0: Hey everyone, Eric here. A lot more people in Washington and other capitals are focusing more attention on what the Chinese are doing in places like Africa, the Middle East, the Americas. But this isn't an issue that you can simply jump into and expect to understand what's going on. Things are moving just way too fast. And this is a story that really doesn't fit neatly with a lot of the prevailing narratives. And that's why the newsletter that we produce is so important. It's the day-to-day tracking of this story that will help you get up to speed. We meticulously go through hundreds of sources every day to bring you a concise digest of the day's top China news from Africa and throughout the global South. And then we deliver it straight to your inbox Monday to Friday at 6 a.m. Washington time. Try it free for 30 days. See if you like it. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everybody else. Sign up today at com slash subscribe. Once again, that's com slash subscribe.
1: The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University
2: in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from sub-China, I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the Senior China-Africa Researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, just quickly before we get started, a very quick shout out to our Patreon members, a huge thank you at the end of the year for all the wonderful support and the discussions that we've had. We're scheduling next month Zoom calls right now so we put a word out to everybody if you'd like to join our zoom calls and these one-on-one briefings we're doing and these group sessions where we're having these great chats with everybody from around the world go to patreoncom Africa project you'll also get our weekly digest which is fantastic i'm so proud of this and uh, we're also going to be pioneering just this week a new video idea so uh, we're going to put that over on patreon with some some cool things that we've got planned and next year We're going to be doing some really cool things. We've got new French and Arabic services coming. So we've got, our team is growing and uh, Patreon folks are really gonna benefit from that. Okay, Kobus, let's get on with the news right now. Holy moly, it's been a week. I mean, I always say this. I mean, I think our listeners are probably getting bored of us saying this, but it has been a very busy time. And I'm really hoping that now until the end of the year, things start to calm down. But let's start in China, in Zhejiang province, Authorities have shut down 12 factories in a a factory district in Zhejiang, and three of those factories are cobalt processing uh, facilities that generate up to 1,500 to 2,000 tons a month of cobalt. And this is causing a lot of concern within the entire cobalt supply chain, leading out of the Democratic Republic of Congo all the way to international automakers and Chinese automakers. The timing for this shutdown really could not have been worse, in part because China last month registered record sales of new energy vehicles using cobalt powered batteries. So the demand for cobalt is going to go up. With these factories offline, that's going to create all sorts of new supply chain disruptions. And it's very likely that the cost of an electric vehicle, at least in the short term, is going to go up because of these factory closures. Now, authorities have shut these factories down because of an outbreak of about 172 cases of COVID-19 infections in Zhejiang, now, that may not seem like a lot, especially, Cobus, for where you are in South Africa and in the United States, where and, and here in Vietnam as well, where there's tens of thousands of infections, but for China, they are pursuing this zero-COVID strategy, so even if there are just a few dozen or a few hundred infections, they take some oftentimes rather extreme measures and they have shut down these factories. Other news item from this week, which we're going to get into later in the show— Kenya has repaid $266 million to the China Exim Bank for loans on the standard gauge railway. Now, China stands apart from other creditors in Kenya by requiring the Kenyan government to repay its loans, whereas, Creditors from France, for example, have reduced their repayments and their debt servicing costs from $20 million last year to just $59,000 this year. And Japanese debt servicing expenses last year were around $4 million, and that dropped to just $6,411. So you can see how $266 million really stands out. The problem here, Kobus, is that the Kenyans are now shipping so many dollars offshore to repay some of these loans, it's starting to put real pressure on the shilling. So the shilling now is down near record lows. It's, it's fallen 10% since last year. Part of the reason why the shilling is now under so much pressure is because foreign exchange reserves are also going down in part to service these loans to China. So we're in this potentially dangerous cycle Where foreign exchange reserves dip, investors then back off the shilling, the dollar gets stronger, the cost of borrowing goes up, and Kenya is in. This potentially vicious cycle. So, last story that we're going to talk about this week, and I'm just going to tease it now because we're going to get into it later, is this question of the base in Equatorial Guinea that the United States military basically fed a story to the Wall Street Journal. There was no skeptical reporting on the part of the journal. We're going to have some sound bites from the Pentagon spokesperson who was asked to provide some evidence of the claim and to support the claim he wasn't able to do so that china wants to build a base on the atlantic coast of africa so Cobus, lots to go through and, and and we're not even close to getting through what we're going to go through the show today but let me just stop there and get your take on some of these events from the past week or two
3: yeah that's uh, as you say it's really it's really interesting to see how the the global supply chain issue is really impacting the cobalt and electric vehicle supply chain particularly um, and how even a small outbreak of, of covid you know in 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 a, in a particular chinese province then has this kind of knock-on effect right around the world um i think the only thing i could think when i heard that is that everyone must be like ramping up their their research into non-cobalt related kind of non-cobalt containing uh, electric vehicle batteries to even higher levels because I think that is the Holy Grail in that industry at the moment is to find some kind of battery that doesn't contain cobalt um, which in the longer longer term could be bad news for the for the Democratic Republic of Congo in relation to Kenya also it's it's you know it, it's it's a very interesting you know situation and you know and I, I you know I look forward to kind of unpacking um today like what it what kind of messages it actually sends you know from China to be this hardcore about about kind of debt servicing, you know, kind of particularly also as China, you know, kind of goes out of its way to emphasize how how much it's it's cooperated with the G20's uh, debt service suspension initiative. Um, so you know, kind of it, it it sends an interesting kind of like set of mixed messages, I think, to the global south.
0: Well, to your point on the cobalt-free batteries, that's very interesting because there was another story that we wrote about today, which is a company by the name of S-Volt Energy Technology. They just raised a billion dollars, and they're one of China's largest uh, battery manufacturers, and they are pioneering, along with BYD, which is the second largest Electric vehicle manufacturer in the world behind Tesla, cobalt free batteries. And so they said they're going to apply some of this billion dollars of their Series B round to developing. Uh, cobalt-free batteries and developing lithium-ion batteries, as well as sodium-ion batteries as well. So if you're sitting in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you might want to be paying attention to some of these trends in China, because as Cobus pointed out, they are quite worrisome. Well, let's get a perspective from Beijing on everything that's been going on, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion today, because our guest today is one of these guys who can talk about so many different things. I've been following him on Twitter for a long time, Andy Mok is a Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing, and he's also a technology commentator for the Chinese state-run broadcaster CGTN. A very good afternoon to you, Andy, and thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Great to be here, uh, Eric and Kobus. i uh, really been looking forward to this. I follow your uh, podcast, your material, your other content, and uh, really great job, and uh, it's an honor to be here today. Well, thank you, and we
0: appreciate it. Let's start with FOCAC. It's been a couple of weeks since FOCAC wrapped up in Dakar, Senegal. You were watching what happened at the Forum on China-Africa cooperation conference. The narrative that came out of FOCAC in the African media as well as in the international media was somewhat jumbled. People were confused about whether it's $40 billion of commitment, $60 billion of commitment. This then started to provoke all of these conversations about whether China is retrenching from Africa, it's pulling back from Africa. Uh, I will say that COBUS has has mounted a very spirited defense that's saying it's too early to come to any conclusions about China's commitment in terms of money, because it takes time for these things to work out and for dollars to be attached to the vaccine donation and things like that. What we can tell you for certain is that Whoever did the media messaging out of this uh, doesn't deserve a promotion this year because it's very confusing. And I'm just curious about how you saw FOCAC this year and what your colleagues in Beijing at the center and also in the media in China, how they interpreted and what they saw from it.
1: Well, I think it's not surprising that we would have different media viewpoints or reporting, given the diversity of perspectives and even political agendas, as as we all know. Um, So I think that's not too surprising. Uh, The view from China, and I would say maybe the think tank circles here in China, is that uh, really it's a continuation of China's longstanding policy of making uh, Africa a priority. And we look at, you know, everything from the symbolism, the optics of uh, traditionally the foreign minister here, in this case, Wang Yi's first trip every year uh, is to Africa. Uh, This is the eighth Uh, And I think you mentioned that this is like the Olympics for for people that follow Africa, that it's something that's looked forward to every year. I think this is similar in China as well, that the consistency of valuing a a relationship with Africa, uh, contributing uh, to its development in a spirit of partnership not, say, in the spirit of a patron-client relationship uh, or some of the other models we've seen in the past ranging from colonialism to uh, a kind of a a commercial exploitation and mercantilism, but really approaching it uh, with mutual respect um, as uh, equals, as partners uh, working together. I think that's uh, at a high level, is, is the the view here in Beijing?
3: Obviously, this 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 work um, that the China does at FOCAC fits into it's it's a, a much wider kind of global focus you know run along the the lines of the Belt and Road initiative and you know kind of and many many other kind of policies i was wondering um, from your perspective at the the center for china and globalization is there a, a specific kind of chinese vision of globalization is you know kind of is, is like how is globalization seen in in kind of you know intellectual circles in china and you know kind of how does does kind of this in for example the you know xi jinping thought and other kind of issues how do they Fit into a, a kind of a, this this kind of Chinese vision of globalization.
1: No, that's a great question, Cobus, and I think that it's something that doesn't get quite enough media attention, certainly in the anglophone world, where we see uh, a lot of negative narratives, you know, debt trap diplomacy, which we may talk about more, uh, to you know just this phobia about quote unquote communism. Um, But I think that the starting point is actually philosophical in that we look at Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. And it's quite a mouthful, as we all know. Um, But I think the core essence of it is the integration of traditional Chinese values that stem from Chinese philosophy uh, with Maoist socialism, with the dungest emphasis on economic efficiency and bringing all that together uh, to transform China, but also uh, what it's doing around the world. And I think the important part here to get really philosophical uh, for a minute, as we go back to first principles, uh, metaphysics, how do we understand the world? There was a very well known uh, French sociologist and sinologist named Marcel Grenet, who made a very interesting statement. He said that Chinese wisdom has no need for the idea of God. And what this means is that in China, uh, There isn't this view that arises from the Greek philosophical tradition of Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, that there is some omnipotent uh, creator, the craftsman, I think is how Plato referred to it, that created this world in his image. And what we're trying to do is become more like him, her, it, uh, or return uh, to this state of pure absoluteness. But in China, the view traditionally is that this world is all there is. There isn't this duality or this bifurcation. And what this means practically is that China has a much more humane, uh, benevolent, I would say even a basic decency about how to go about being in the world. And this is not just at the individual level, but Uh, is manifested in initiatives like Common Prosperity, like the Belt and Road Initiative. And I think we can probably talk more about how this philosophical foundation then gets sort of viewed around the world negatively in debt trap diplomacy, other types of behavior that I think stems from a basic strategic mistrust uh, between the uh, Western Anglophone order centered around the United States and the emerging order uh, coming from China.
3: Just following up on that, you you spent time early in your career, you spent time at the RAND Corporation, um, you know, it was a conservative American think tank, um, very central to Republican Party thinking. And that's you made a very quite a journey from there to you know to your current position at at a, at a, a think tank that's you know that that is close in the orbit of 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 the Chinese state um, and and the and the party. So I was wondering, you know, just from your like from your perspective, like what were the what did you learn from that from that from spending time in both of those spaces? Like you know, kind of how how did it influence you, and and particularly kind of like what kind of. Differences and similarities do you see between your current position and you know, like earlier times at, at RAND?
1: Sure. No, I think that's uh, a great question, Kobus. Um, so I was at RAND uh, part of a group researching China. So that really hasn't changed. So today I'm at the Center for China Globalization, which is a leading independent think tank uh, researching China. So that's the, the thread. Um, I would clarify a little bit too about uh, Rand and its uh, position on the ideological spectrum in that uh, it's as far as I know, Rand is not aligned with any political philosophy or political party, and here we can contrast that with maybe a heritage foundation, uh, maybe an Aei that has a certain worldview and advocates advocates for certain Uh, views, certain policy positions, whereas RAND has uh, seen itself as being very objective and providing analysis, Uh, and in fact the name RAND is an acronym uh, for research and uh, analysis, right? So in this way, but of course, Rand has done a lot of work and historically was spun out of the U.S. Air Force uh, to provide long-term strategic planning and research. And I think that is one very, very big difference. Um, and of course, uh, Rand looks at things from the prism of American interest, whereas uh, CCG thinks about issues mostly from a perspective of China's interest, but I think it's a little bit broader in that even in the name, it reflects this the Center for China and Globalization, that it is a little bit more, I could say, ideological in that it does have a policy affinity and a policy preference, which is for greater globalization, greater opening and uh, of China, uh, particularly when it comes to issues around trade, capital, uh, people, uh, so facilitating the flow of these resources or these factors of production globally. So that is, is, I think, some of the differences. And happy to talk more about how think tanks work in China versus the U.S., which is what I'm familiar with, and maybe other parts of the world.
0: I would like to pick up on a couple of things that you you just mentioned. You talked about a benevolence of the Chinese anchored into, you know, thousands of years of of Chinese thinking and philosophy on these issues. And, and I know we hear that quite a bit from China, and we, we just heard it from you, but it's hard for those of us sometimes on the outside to reconcile what we're seeing and, and that ideology and that philosophy. And I, I'm hoping that you might be able to explain a little bit more. So we see, for example, that China is has a history, a long history of thousands of years of it, it, tributary relationships. I'm sitting in a country in Vietnam that had a tributary relationship for a thousand years with China, and and those are highly unequal relationships in many respects because of China's sheer size. That China's always been able to use carrots and sticks to, to be able to pull its foreign policy levers, and it hasn't had to use. A military force and imperialism in imperialism the same way that, say, the Europeans and the Americans have, but it had other tools at its disposal to achieve many of the same objectives, such as the history of China and Vietnam's relationship. Today, we see China... Uh, engaging with middle power countries, Australia, Canada, uh, some European countries, in a quite aggressive way. Uh, whether who's right and who's wrong, we won't get into that. But there's no denying that it is aggressive in that respect. So, how do we reconcile, especially for countries sitting in Africa, which are far from being middle power? So they're you know economically much more vulnerable. They could never challenge China. So there's there's an asymmetry in the relationship. And we come back to the hallmark of China and its tributary instincts and those philosophies where China as a major power never has to make a concession. China with Ghana never has to concede because it's so big, it's so powerful, especially if a small country like Ghana decides to challenge China on one of the more sensitive red line issues, for example, which hasn't happened because the risks are very high as we're seeing with Lithuania today. But I just, can you help us better understand, anchor some of these this dichotomy between the benevolence you speak about and some of the more harsh realities that we see in contemporary issues involving China and the world.
1: Sure. No, and I think here we're getting into I think fairly complex uh, issues that uh, I think are really hard to resolve in a very satisfying way. But let me start with this uh, idea of you know if we think about it from a Confucian perspective that. A leader should, and we're talking about the ideal here, and of course any uh, philosophical system, any system of uh, ethics, there is always a gap between the practice and the ideal, but that one uh, leads by example and through moral virtue rather than force. And one maybe quick way we can see this, we're very... Contemporary example, we can see uh, the benevolence or the the humanity of China's uh, philosophical roots, and even today's governing system is this dynamic zero COVID policy, where we see places in the U.S. where the cost of uh, maintaining zero or very low COVID cases and deaths is considered too high, that a certain amount of human cost and suffering is part of doing business. And I think this is a great example of the difference in outlook. Um, but then when you come back to these ideas of the tributary system, uh, again, I think if we look, we can probably find examples of where uh, this was the ideal and the practice, uh, perhaps a Differed, But the fundamental aspect, my understanding, of the tributary uh, system was a recognition and acknowledgement of these neighboring states, this, these tributary states, of showing respect to China or, or the emperor uh, at the time. And in exchange for this symbolic show of respect, Uh, these countries, these tributary countries, gain far greater practical benefit, uh, access to market opportunities, et cetera. And that this is the nature of the relationship. And Eric, you're right that um, China historically has been much bigger than its neighbors. And I think not just bigger, but perhaps governed in a way that it could also bring to bear uh, various kinds of power. And this could be diplomatic power, cultural power as well. And as a result of that, there is a a natural order, perhaps we can call it, um, that requires the recognition that just as if you are a much bigger person, taller, wider, than someone else. You naturally would take up more space, whether you want to or not. And I think this can, of course, cause resentment, and that would not be surprising. I think it's human nature. Um, But it also requires, I think, a certain, perhaps, tact on the part of the larger party to minimize these feelings or to find ways to deal with them. And I think this is uh, China's challenge today because as we see, of course, uh, with the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, the Chinese dream, that China is becoming economically larger, politically larger, and I think soon culturally larger as well. And there will be adjustments that have to be made on both sides, whether you're a Ghana or whether you're China. Well,
0: I mean, the small powers have to adjust because they have no choice. And there, you, you know, as you pointed out, that the big panda can sit wherever he, he wants. The little pandas have to make room for the big pandas. And I, I guess this speaks to this asymmetry that China has in so many of its relationships here in ASEAN, but as well as, it, especially in places like Africa. So you talked about how it's not a client-patron relationship, But yet one of the issues at Focac this year was addressing the massive trade imbalances where it effectively is a client patron relationship in the sense that Africans are importing vast amounts of quantities of Chinese products, massive trade deficits up and down the, the continent. And at the, and about ten or twelve African countries have enormous Chinese debt issues as well. So they are, and those are commercial debts in many respects. So there is a client patron relationship that is there is a much more commercial transactional relationship in many ways than it is uh, anything else. It's Africans are selling raw materials and products. It's a market for Chinese goods, and it's a market for Chinese financial products in the form of loans.
1: Well, no, and I think that we have to be careful here in terms of a patron-client relationship in the political sense versus who might have more uh, economic uh, influence or leverage because of the uh, size of the either the market or the financial resources they bring to the table. So I think that what we're talking about is more the latter versus the former, meaning that Um, Again, because of the size of China's population, but also other factors as well, the physical infrastructure that makes it essentially one unified market versus 10, 12 regional markets, uh, perhaps more like the EU. Um, The governance structure that allows a certain amount of, not even a certain amount, but I think a high degree of political uh, and commercial stability and predictability that allows uh, this economic potential uh, to be harnessed, that this, you know, again, is an unavoidable fact of life, the way that, you know, a planet like Jupiter would exert greater gravitational pull than Mercury would. And, you know, that's not a question of intention, uh, but more uh, just a physical uh, reality. Uh, I think is is driving some of that um, when we talk about the uh, trade deficits, I think that's a great point um, and something that you know China I think has recognized and has taken steps to address. Uh, we look at uh, the opening of green channels uh, for African imports to China, uh, also looking at um, CIIE, right, which is the China International Import Expo, and look at the participation of a number of UN agencies, uh, like UNDP, uh, other agencies, and I think this is because they see this, and China sees this too, uh, not just for promoting trade and business for the Fortune 50 or even the Fortune 500, but creating a platform where developing countries, whether that's in Africa and South Asia and Southeast Asia, can also participate as well. And the other last point I would make about this is that rightly or wrongly, and I personally believe this is a more pragmatic and in the long run, a better approach that China has to working with Uh, the countries of Africa and other parts of the global south is, and you know this phrase probably better than I do, is uh, trade, not aid, meaning that if you're going to make donations and that's your primary strategy, uh, that's really not sustainable in the long run. And China's approach has been uh, trade, uh, win-win, meaning that both sides have to, uh, derive economic benefit, and this is I think why we see interest rates on Chinese uh, debt higher than you might see for the concessionary ones uh, from traditional Western donors um, is that there really has to be to be sustainable. Um, it has to make economic sense for both sides. But of course, that can impose short-term cost and short-term pain, uh, but is more sustainable in the long run.
0: Kobus, before we go on, I'd like to get your reaction to Andy's thoughts on, on the equity in the relationship and some of the, the positions that he was laying out.
3: From an African perspective, I think I can see Andy's point in terms of in terms of the the need to make the exchange sustainable. And you know, obviously, all of all of this is you know kind of is is happening within um, within the context, um, you know, within a global kind of capitalist context as well what I kind of wonder about is what the kind of larger kind of game is behind issues for example like like this this trend that you mentioned um, where some of, of Kenya's traditional lenders like like France for example has um, has greatly reduced the the, the, the current amount of, of debt servicing from from Kenya. Um, maybe partly in in response to the the, the current economic crisis in in, in Kenya, um, but China is making a point of not doing that. You know, kind of or, the, or whatever. Like maybe China's too broad a term. The particular kind of Chinese lenders are, are making a point of not doing that. And and now, Cobus, just to that point, at great economic pain
0: to Kenya, the repayment of the China Exim Bank loans for the Standard Gauge Railway now is coming at a cost. Uh, and it's coming at, and, and the it's the guy on the street that's actually bearing it because of the devaluation of the currency. That's a great example, Andy, of the inequity in the relationship where Kenya tried to assert itself. And again, we think the debt trap narrative is a is just just a waste of time. There are other legitimate issues in the China-Africa relationship that deserve attention. And what's going on in Kenya right now with the repayment of those loans is a great example of that, but also represents the inequity in the relationship, that China said, you're going to repay these loans, that's it, we're not extending the deferral, and whether Kenya likes it or not, they're having to do it, and it's coming at great considerable cost to them, and and we can see them struggling.
1: Well, I guess what I would say to this is that, first of all, um, while it certainly can seem like China is one monolithic, unified entity, and in some ways it is. Uh, But there are also, it's a very complex system with a lot of moving parts. And I'll go back to COVID as an example, um, where we've seen there have been outbreaks and where those outbreaks are seen to be the result of some laxity in the local officials' uh, work or uh, I guess, sensitivity to outbreaks or their speed of response, that there is swift and immediate accountability, meaning people are fired. And, you know, we don't see this in other political systems around the world to the same degree. So, how does this play out with the situation with Kenya? In that I'm not necessarily sure that this is a government decision that we're going to make can you repay, but that the people that are responsible for this loans uh, on the lending side are under a lot of pressure, again, because this is win-win. It's on commercially, largely commercially viable terms versus this one-way donation or aid. Um, And they're doing their best to make sure that they're going to achieve their Intent, their original goals for this project. Now, I think, again, what makes it very complex and subject to oversimplification and demonization uh, is that this is complex. There are uh, sometimes conflicting incentives in these kinds of projects. and. I think how they get played out is it's a combination of diplomacy as well as economic negotiations as well. So to put maybe an optimistic spin on this, uh, this may still play out well for everybody. Uh, It may not as well. And I have to say here, too, if we think about uh, pure commercial lending arrangements, um, when the debtor does not make payments as agreed, Often there is foreclosure, and this can result in uh, enormous uh, cost, both financial as well as personal cost, uh, for those peop- those involved. And again, that's a part of how the world works. And you know, my hope is that there can be some accommodation reached that balances all of these. But what I wonder is that the political side has not been... Fully invoked yet.
3: Following up on that, you know, there's, there's a kind of a line of reasoning from from certain kind of Western observers of China's relationship with with the global South, saying that that even as they reject the kind of the the, the narrow debt trap narrative, the idea that that you know, that China is seizing state assets, for example, as a form of collateral. They do say that that China is through all of through all of this lending is essentially creating relationships of dependency. You know, kind of where long term relationships with with built-in leverage due to due to all of this debt you know I, I can see that logic on the other hand I you know kind of what, what, what we're also seeing in Africa is that there is definite political costs to China and Africa around these issues particularly you know particularly this kind of like ongoing kind of like drumbeat of anxiety around Chinese loans and with it then either a kind of a misunderstood, misunderstood narrative about for example the airport being taken away but, but in many cases that actually is a kind of a proxy for just a general anxiety about the the, the Like the local government just being in the pocket of China, like like losing losing its power just because China has so much leverage, economic leverage over it. Um, So you know, and and that I think is causing significant anti-China backlash in 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 certain African countries. Um, Like how how do you think China balances those those issues? You know, kind of because they 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 both seem to, you know, the both perspectives don't seem to tell the whole story. But on the on the ground in Africa, we we're certainly seeing the backlash.
1: No, and I think this is what makes it a very uh, thorny issue for all involved, COBUS, and we could probably even call it a wicked problem. Because on the one hand, this dynamic of a major lender, major investor, major customer having a lot of influence or leverage uh, is just an economic consequence. Again, if we go back to this idea of larger masses have greater gravity, that if you're a business or even if you're a government, your biggest lender uh, is going to have a lot of influence, whether they want to or not. And I don't see how that can be avoided. And part of the narrative, though, that I see, especially in uh, English language media around this, is to point this out as somehow unique to China. But I think it's actually a fundamental aspect of the economic relationship. And this is something that really cannot be avoided because, again, it's fundamental to the relationship. Um, the question, though, is that at the margins, can this be communicated better on the Chinese side? Uh, could there be perhaps more maturity, for lack of a better word, amongst some African audiences that if you're going to accept a large loan uh, on mostly commercial terms, that your lender is going to be expected to be repaid. And that's not an unreasonable expectation, Uh, especially if that was the Uh, terms laid out at the beginning. It's not like saying, well, we're going to give you this money for free, take it, and then six months later, oh, by the way, we're going to charge you a really high interest rate. Um, That it was very, China's been very upfront on these terms. And if you can't perform for whatever reasons, um, it's hard to see on a categorical basis that there should be some change. Now, of course, you know, I think there are, we can imagine, and there are humanitarian exceptions, uh, unexpected consequences, force majeure type situations that both sides ought to be flexible on. So I think this is a difficult problem to solve at its core, again, because of the size of China in terms of the money that it's offering, and that it does see this wanting to be in a done in a sustainable way. I wanna to say too, that this is also a challenge not just with china uh, with other countries like those in africa but we look at what's going on in real estate in the real estate industry in china today too there is always this question of uh, how much should we support certain companies because uh, it strengthens the system and creates a certain discipline in the long run uh, but on the other hand you know these it's a balancing act i think
0: yeah you say that They're they're up front, and I think with the governing elites that they're negotiating the loan contracts with, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of visibility on the terms of the loans. I think one of the objections that a lot of people have in Africa and around the world, by the way, to some of the lending arrangements that they have with the Chinese is the lack of transparency in the entire process, and that the loans aren't made available for the public to review, even if those are the laws of that country. There are clauses in the contracts and that's what we know from the aid data research. Why is it do you think and maybe you can enlighten us a little bit as to why the the Chinese generally insist on so much opacity and and lack of transparency in their dealings with governments. Even in the run up to FOCAC for example, no one knew the dates up until 2 weeks in advance. You know, and there's just a lot of mystery behind Chinese official dealings in places like Africa. And what ends up happening is that contributes to the negative narratives, because in the absence of information, people get to say anything they want. And and so on the loan deals, for example, why doesn't China encourage Mm -hmm. African governments to make them open to the public? Because the public, at the end of the day, is going to be paying for these loans, and I'm just curious if you have any insights on maybe Chinese history or Chinese political behavior, and because in part, China itself, domestically, doesn't have a lot of transparency in its political process, so maybe they're just bringing that into the international system as well. But any insights you have on, on this insistence on secrecy and opacity in the process and their dealings?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Eric, I would lean a little bit more towards what you were saying, and again, I don't think I have any special insight into this, but that the cultural traditions in China, uh, especially around governance, uh, has are different than what we see in the Anglophone uh, West, right? That transparency as a good and even a highly prioritized good, I think just isn't there. And that plays out, of course, I think as China engages... Uh, more with the world. But that being said, I think we can also see that there is an adaptation as well. And, you know, that China is learning as it goes. And we can see, let's say if we look at media, uh, the foreign language state media from 10 years ago to today, uh, that China's learning how to communicate more effectively with diverse audiences around the globe, and perhaps uh, we'll see advances in this area as well.
3: A few months ago, um, you wrote a column for CGTN um, about the BRICS summit, and the the headline was, um, the 13th summit shows BRICS rising as US-dominated system crumbles. Um, Do you actually think the US-dominated system is crumbling?
1: Yeah, I think that is the question that is occupying the minds of uh, many, many uh, researchers, politicians, even business people around the world. Um, Let me go out on a limb here and say that we look at this past uh, summit of democracy uh, that just happened, that was uh, organized by the Biden administration. And we look around the world, um, well, let's look at the last couple of years and what 2022 might bring. So there's a growing consensus that uh, the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal was a huge strategic uh, misstep. Um, The tariff wars uh, initiated against China was also uh, a huge strategic misstep. The way the withdrawal of from Afghanistan was handled by the Biden administration it was another uh, major strategic error. And we look at this and say, this raises, I think, questions around the world about the US system and the polarization and all these other things that I think we're all very familiar with. Um, and then looking ahead uh, in this self-declared Uh, confrontation with these so-called autocracies, uh, three of the main ones being China, Russia, and Iran. We look at what's happening in the Ukraine, and it's very possible in 2022 that Russia may achieve one of its long-sought foreign policy goals by uh, creating, however it does it, a, a buffer state Uh, against NATO in Europe. Uh, We look at Taiwan, and there could be some, again, major breakthrough in 2022 that uh, sees the realization of a long-held goal of China, the reunification, Um, and a nuclear Iran. So if we... These are three, not just not implausible, but we could see these as very clearly possibilities on the horizon and see how What does that mean for the the future of uh the United States and you know the the small handful of of, of uh partners it has uh in advancing this narrative this uh uh policy narrative of democracies versus autocracies
0: wow <laughs>
1: That's- the three scenarios that you laid out, I mean,
0: Taiwan, Iran, and Russia, I mean, if those three things happen in 2022, that's going to be a very eventful 2022. You know, it's, I, I mean, I. <laughs> There's so much for me to chew on right there. I'm, I'm struggling to figure out where to go, but we, we're running out of time. But I do want to kind of bring up this, this question of the antagonism that is, that is elevating on both sides, on the U.S. side, on the China side. And then you think about countries in places like Africa, here in Asia in South America that have made it clear they don't want to be caught in the middle of all this. But at the end of the day, the rhetoric is getting so acidic And it's a little bit disingenuous of the Chinese to say, well, the Americans are the ones who are fomenting all of this when you just have to look at Global Times, at CGTN, at Zhao Lijian. I mean, both sides are contributing to this and there's just no, it's unavoidable and there's no way around that. If you were talking to a group of African policymakers, what would you advise them in how to manage this, what could be potentially A disastrous 2022 if even one of those things that you uh, described comes true. I mean, the idea of, again, a war in Ukraine, Taiwan, reunification, all of those are going to be extraordinarily tumultuous if they they happen. If you are a small country trying to figure your place in the world and they go and they say, Andy, give us the Chinese view on what you think we should do, what would you tell them?
1: Yeah, well, so I want to be clear here, Eric, about these three... Uh, wins for the countries that the U.S. has dubbed autocracies. So, with Ukraine, it doesn't necessarily have to be a military invasion. There are hundred thousand troops on the border, though,
0: right now. So that is a reality that is, you know, we can't yes, avoid. Yes,
1: absolutely. One hundred seventy thousand, or right. But the uh, question here is that uh, Russia, the Russian Federation, I think, has felt. Uh, betrayed and we don't have time to go into all the details of this but uh, and threatened by the West NATO's uh, behavior and is looking to neutralize that threat and yes I I think that an actual military invasion is not out of the question but that certainly uh, the troops master on the border can uh, provide the diplomatic leverage to Resolve things in Russia's favor. Uh, Iran going nuclear uh, again. I think we we have to see, but um, certainly uh, doesn't seem like an implausible outcome. And with Taiwan also, um, how that plays out. I think um, the Chinese government has been very clear that uh, a forceful reunification is not its priority, but you know, the, a peaceful uni- reunification uh, is most important, but force cannot be ruled out.
0: Which keeps a lot of us up at night with cold sweats, by the way. I mean, let's that's that's yes. You know, that is the a nightmare scenario for a lot of us. I mean again, just the process of whatever that is, because you know, especially those of us who live in Asia, it would be incredibly destabilizing. Mm. And so again, if you are a small country in Southeast Asia, you're a small country in 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 Africa, I know that you know your center hosts a lot of visiting delegations from these countries. Absolutely. What would you tell them on how to navigate these? No matter what, they're going to be turbulent times ahead. And from a Chinese perspective, what advice would you give?
1: Yeah. Them? So I would start with sort of a, a macro view that um, that first of all the the lens for better or worse, but the lens through. Uh, better to more clearly seeing the the future is through the China U.S. competition, and I would say it's a competition for discourse power. So you touched on uh, some of the more aggressive rhetoric from. Uh, the Global Times, like Hu Xijing, uh, Zhao Tian at the Foreign Ministry, etc., um, that it's all part and parcel of this. And I want to go back to something that Steve Bannon said a few years ago. Um, and he seemed very early to say that China was the existential threat facing the U.S. And I think he was right, but not for the reasons that he said. And it's that for a very long time, the norm uh, was that Western liberal democracy, American style, uh, capitalism, uh, where capital was at the top, um, this sort of representative democracy uh, was the perfect complement. And what China has shown is that in fact, there is an alternative. And this is creating, I think, a tremendous existential threat for the United States, as we can see with the Biden administrations, uh, I guess, looking to create this coalition of democratic states that may not be all that democratic, um, but to serve to oppose what it sees as a better system. So this is, in fact, playing out and it is having a global effect, whether, you know, we're looking at Singapore, Vietnam, Africa, even Latin America, a look at Nicaragua recently changing uh, or uh, no longer recognizing Taiwan and now establishing formal diplomatic relations uh, with the PRC, that this truly is having global implications. I would say that advice to uh, countries around the world, is what they're going to do anyway is, of course, looking out for their own interest and looking for ways uh, that they can uh, advance their interest in this uh, somewhat turbulent period. And I want to talk about something else as well that is related to this that hasn't gotten that much attention in the technology space is one of the key uh, areas of American hegemony is uh, – the dominance of the global financial system, the use of the dollar as a reserve currency, which also... And SWIFT. Allows, exactly, uh, SWIFT, which allows the U.S. to sanction uh, countries around the world and threaten sanctions that could be devastating. Um, now, one thing we can see with countries like Africa and South Asia is that China, with uh, smart, inexpensive smartphones and the rollout of the digital yuan... Uh, can not only allow financial inclusion for the unbanked and people that do not have internet access, but also create an alternative system that is more efficient, cheaper, and not subject uh, to U.S. sanctions. So this, I think, in a way, can be good for small and medium powers as well. Uh, So we're in a a turbulent time, and... uh, you know, where there's times of great change, especially disruptive change, there are both opportunities and threats. So I think that for countries around the world to pay attention to this, is how it plays out, and to be alert to opportunities and do the best to mitigate the risks and the downside.
0: Wow. There's a lot to, to think about. Andy, we really appreciate you Taking the time to walk us through this. It's been a fascinating discussion. Andy Mock is a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing and also a commentator for the Chinese state-run broadcaster CGTN. Andy, you are very active on Twitter and you have a fascinating Twitter feed. Tell everybody where they can find you.
1: Absolutely. So I am at Andy Mock, A-N-D-Y-M-O-K, and I appreciate the shout out, Eric, um, and Cobus. It's been my pleasure to be on this podcast with you guys and uh, really appreciate the chance to exchange ideas. We really appreciate it. And we talk a lot on the show about the knowledge
0: deficits about China that exist in the world and it's conversations like this with people like you who I think go a long way to help close some of those deficits, the understanding, even if we don't agree with everything you're saying, it's important to at least have these conversations like this. And I'm so happy that we had the chance to do it with you. Thank you again.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: There was so much to think about from what Andy said. And again, there was a lot in there that I really didn't agree with, but I think it's so healthy for us to have these conversations and we don't get the opportunity to have these thoughtful extended exchanges with Chinese stakeholders very often because so much of the discourse over China as, as he talked about, it's discourse politics in many respects, and it ends up turning into a shouting match. And I just appreciate Andy coming on the show and really laying out his worldview. And in so many ways, he speaks to the contemporary thinking in China, and, and, he, and he does it so well that I think it's and it's easy to understand for us because it's not always easy to understand for outsiders listening to the Chinese discourse. And it's so important because... The Chinese thinking on many of these issues has changed radically in the past five to ten years, and we've talked at length about the knowledge deficits that exist in Africa, in Washington, in many countries about China, and really listening carefully to people like Andy and what they're saying to understand what they how they see the world is so important even if we're not intended we're not meant to agree with everything he says but we at least have to understand the way they see the world rather than just shut it down and stop the conversation
3: and so for that i i'm i'm really excited about today's conversation yeah me too it's it's really really interesting i think it's also you know i i, I think there's a, there's so much to unpack in 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 what he mentioned um and one and one of the issues that's really interesting for me is is that i think You know, we we, we so frequently talk about China wanting to kind of reset world standards, but like one of the things that I think gets reset in the process is actually the way that that Africa figures in the global system, you know, kind of like there's, there's this particular kind of niche for Africa within the global system with and, and a lot of that a lot of that niche is is is, is defined by constraints right kind of a lot a lot of you know Africa is excluded from many many kind of global systems or even if they they kind of sit on these kind of in, in these bodies they they you know kind of their voices don't necessarily matter as much as as, as other members but you know kind of what's what's very interesting is that is that in a way like it it like the the niche is also defined by certain allowances you know kind of certain kind of in in some kind of be you know kind of this kind of ongoing idea of Africa being extremely vulnerable, in some cases a little bit of a basket case um and therefore allowances have to be made um and i think you know kind of in a way china is changing a lot of that as well it's not only you know kind of obviously when you speak to chinese diplomats they're always kind of focusing on on how they uh, they kind of like change in in the global system is in a way a democratization of the global system it's a way of of kind of creating more space for global south countries and that's one of the reasons why no matter how rich China gets, it's always going to be playing the global South country card. But in a way, part of that kind of, <laughs> that that change is also in a way, I think taking away some of the accommodations that Africa has gotten used to over the years. You know, and and, and that is kind of the frame within which I see this kind of Kenya debt thing playing out. That's right. Um, so, and, and that is itself very interesting. And it's something that I think Africa should really take more notice of. <laughs> I think they have to
0: understand. And again, we've said this from the very beginning of our podcast, and I remember saying this back in 2010 when we first started, that China is playing by a different set of rules. Now, it's funny to think about that comment today because in the context of the United States and Europeans saying that China wants to change the rules-based order, I guess, yeah, there is some legitimacy to that. There's no doubt. And, And Andy was very clear that they want to do that. You know, I still come from the point of view that when you become the second largest economy bordering on the first largest economy, four or five hundred years of economic history tells us that the largest economy in the world does get to set the rules for everybody else. That has been an economic reality for half a millennia. We may not like it, but that is the reality of, of way that economics has worked at least the way that the British set the rules for everybody when they were the largest economy, the Americans got to set the rules when they were the largest economy, and China is going to assert itself when it becomes the largest economy, and that's what we are seeing today. I think Kenya is bearing the brunt of that. And one has to wonder, again, on how the quality of Kenya negotiating with the Chinese was on these these deals. And again, this goes to the question of agency. And we know that Kenya's foreign ministry, because you and I know people who know people inside the foreign ministry, does not have a strong China competency within the Kenyan foreign ministry. It raises the question for me as to whether or not these deals were were well negotiated. One of the things that has emerged out of the Uganda controversy, and we're going to talk about that, is the fact that these contracts were not well negotiated. And whose fault is that, right? Right. Whose fault is it for not bringing in high-paid legal staff to review these contracts and high-powered legal resources to do that? So, to his point, and he—he he was Andy was very blunt on this. If you want trade, not aid, then this business relationship is going to be run like a business. And he made the the analogy that in in private contract agreements, if you don't pay, well, guess what? There's no free lunch. So. This might be the new reality in the norm setting that you're trying to articulate. That says basically, if you're going to do business with the Chinese, you better be prepared to pay your bills.
3: Yeah, and that normal rules don't apply, you know, or that that the the. But no, well, but that yeah. is a normal rule,
0: though. That is a normal rule in business, but it's not in statecraft. Yes,
3: but but generally, you know, is. kind of statecraft is is not run as like business, you know. So that's yeah. right. It's
0: more accommodating it's more accommodating yeah
3: no, not only more accommodating but also in some kind of ways more complex right kind of because because it it, it reacts to a, a, a different set of factors including kind of political factors yeah so 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 you know kind of i of i i completely agree i think you know I, I think i think there's a lot more work needed to unpack these 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 kind of changes and particularly that that work is really needed to come it should really come from african scholarly circles i think you know because because they they really you know and and other global you know kind of researchers because they really are experiencing it firsthand um you know i think also the 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 other issue of course is that is that africa always is is far away from china you know kind of so so it 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 isn't you know it isn't on the hook or it it doesn't it doesn't there isn't uh, the relationship isn't so affected by 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 cultural factors and kind of and close proximity factors, as you would see in, in Southeast Asia.
0: That's right. It's right here. It's unesca- inescapable here. You cannot, it is your, your North, your South, your East, your West. Exactly. Here in Southeast Asia. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Um, you know, so, so in that sense, Africa is this really interesting kind of case study in, in which a whole bunch of these kind of, of, of this kind of norm setting is being worked out. And, but, but we're not, we're not getting a very kind of like strong, you know, kind of perspective of that from the African side, and you know, kind of just adding to that. I mean, I think you're getting now a glimpse of why there's such why despair is such a, a normal, <laughs> normal emotion in African political life. You know, kind of because because the all of all of what you're seeing, right? Kind of is, is you 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 start getting this kind of like a glimpse of of understanding of why the two dominant ways of looking at one's own government frequently as, a, as, a, as an African citizen is that they're either incompetent or completely craven and corrupt, or both right um, and you can never pinpoint which of the two is dominant in its in, in a kind of particular issue um, you know and of course that's extremely unfair to a lot of African governments and our government officials and they all they all kind of get get you know kind of like condemned in this in in one sentence frequently you know um, but you know Africans have a lot of PTSD in relation to their own governments and and that is where a lot of this kind of like you know where, where these stories of China this this is why a story like China took the airport, as we see in Uganda, takes on so much so much uh, political power because that is it, it taps into this kind of PTSD of being sold out time after time after time by by your own government, um, you know, um, in, in, in relation to all kinds of external actors, not only China, but in this case, China just happens to be the, the, the really big one that everyone is, is focusing on anyway.
0: Well, let's pivot our discussion. We're going to do something a little bit different in this week's episode than we do normally. Normally, I like to wrap up the show within an hour because I just don't believe philosophically that podcast should go more than an hour. Today, we're going to make an exception for two reasons. One, because there's just so much going on, and we want to bring you some of the sound about what's been going on and some of the, the, the sound bites, but also because we're we're getting to the end of the year, this week's going. We're going to have one more show this week, and then we go on a little bit of a break, and we're going to do our year-end show. So we're not going to have a chance to bring you some of these stories. So so bear with us today. We're, we're going to be a little bit longer. I hope you'll indulge us because it's going to be absolutely fascinating. Kobe's talked about the airport at in the Entebbe International Airport. For those of you not familiar with the story. It goes back to a, end of November, the Daily Monitor newspaper, which is a Ugandan newspaper. And this is a very important fact in, in, in our discussion today. A Ugandan newspaper broke the story that China had seized the airport, okay, had seized, done. And that just then triggered weeks now of a frenzy surrounding the debt trap Narrative that resurfaced in force all around the world. And you saw it in the US, in Europe, in India, up and down African social media. China had seized the airport from the Ugandan government because of a failure to pay its debts on the $207 million loan to upgrade the airport and that loan coming from the China Exim Bank. Well, China has been pushing back now against this narrative and the Ugandan governments as well. Uh, President Yoweri Museveni he gave an interview to Reuters and he said, flat out, uh, this is not going to happen. We're not handing over the airport. Then in a bit of public diplomacy statecraft last Friday, the Ugandan government and the Chinese embassy arranged a uh, PPE handover at the airport for the Ugandan Civil Aviation Authority. And it was basically a stunt to have an event at the airport so that different stakeholders could speak out against the daily monitor story. So let's start with a little a few of the soundbites just to give you an idea of what's been going on and what people are saying. So the first sound is going to come from Fred Biomukama, who is Uganda's state minister for transport. And he's going to speak to this issue of the narrative and the debt trap diplomacy stories that continue to surface on social media and in the media. Let's take a
2: listen. Those who don't wish African countries to grow well, they keep on bringing propaganda. Instead, also, them bring bringing like this to us, they keep on formulating stories at the Entebbe airport, the Chinese government has taken it up. I was so surprised someone uses, I don't know these computers, how they do names the airport of Uganda that, is it Chinese? International Airport, something like
0: that. Fred sounds like my 90-year-old mother who's like, these computers, and they do these things. Um, What he was referencing there was somebody Photoshopped the red banner on the Entebbe International Airport, and they wrote the China Entebbe International Airport, and that circulated on Twitter, and AFP's fact-checking unit actually debunked it. You didn't need AFP's fact-checking unit to debunk it. It was so easily perceptible that it was a Photoshop hack. But Kobus, the interesting thing about Bia Mukwama's comments was he kept referring to they, okay? That to me is what stood out. He never mentioned the fact that the story itself originated from within Uganda from the Daily Monitor and framing it as if they don't want Africa to succeed. I don't think he was referring to his compatriots, I think the they was an implicit acknowledgement of foreigners, namely Westerners. What was your take on that?
3: Well, you know, in, in the first place, you know, he echoed he echoed the, the you know the Chinese government's line that you know that Western countries are trying to trying to kind of hold back African development or, or, yeah. pu- or push away. But it's fascinating.
0: This was a Ugandan story yes. that came out. Yes. This wasn't but a the, Western
3: but story. But the, the logic there's always there's always space for for another conspiracy theory, right? Kind of. So it's very easy to to you know kind of for for someone to then make the point that well, some kind of like nefarious foreign actor planted this story or paid for the story or something, you know. So so in that sense, in that sense, there's always kind of like a, a kind of a way around this particular <laughs> this particular issue. But you know, or, or it could simply be that they could simply then also include opposition figures. You know, kind of with, with within the society. It's always very convenient to have a, a shadowy they. You know, um, in in South Africa, there's, there's this cliche where people say, oh, it's third force activities. You know, and, and the third third force can can include anyone, like really anyone in the world. Um, so yeah, you know, kind of I think it's, it's a perennial. African discursive pattern. <laughs> well, let's now hear
0: from Chinese ambassador to Uganda, Zhang Li Zhong, who also spoke at this event. And after the event, he spoke with the media. And what's interesting here is more than almost any other Chinese ambassador, he was very, very clear and just could not have been more clear that the airport will not be handed over under any circumstances. And and again, this is on the record to the media in English. Let's take a listen to Ambassador Zhang.
2: Regarding the specific uh, uh, allegations, I want to say that uh, it is a misreading of the uh, of the relevant agreement. Actually, this loan agreement is guaranteed <coughs> by uh, sovereign credit, <coughs> not by anything else, uh, not connected to any uh, uh, asset of the Uganda. So it will not happen. Uh, I. I Uh, And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, China uh, has never confiscated uh, any uh, national asset of African countries in the history. Even in the uh, extreme uh, cases of default, uh, we always choose to, uh, you know, debt reduction, uh, uh, debt mitigation, or debt uh, restructuring. Uh, We never confiscate any national asset. So this uh, education is wrong. It's false. It has no factual basis. And I want to say it will not happen. It will never happen. And uh, I agree that this airport will always, be, will always be in the hand of the Uganda people, safe and sound.
0: Safe and sound. There you have it, Kobus. That is probably the most definitive defense of China that I've heard in years. And I think Zhang did a a nice job there of actually saying it hasn't happened it won't happen and and again you can hold him to account if it does happen so there you have it on the record a chinese government official kind of flatly denying the chinese debt trap theory
3: yeah and i mean he's right you know we we've pointed out many many times that that they don't seize assets there are no precedents for that but in in this case the asset is is almost it's almost a symbol right kind of it's it's a kind of a symbol of of, of ugandan statehood um you know and, and and an airport is frequently plays that role you know in 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 a country particularly in, in a in an ex-colony uh, an you know kind of that that is on a, a kind of a development trajectory like the like getting your own airport is this big kind of like standard step so so one can see why you know kind of even though he says that like the, that doesn't necessarily quell the the controversy because it the the controversy wasn't really about the airport itself. It's about this kind of larger loss of, of national control and, you know, kind of and, and a kind of a drama of, of you know, kind of a, a lack, of, lack of trust between the government and the people.
0: And sometimes I actually think the debt trap discussion serves the Chinese quite well because all this discussion about the debt trap that isn't true obfuscates the larger problems with the contract that are true. And what we know from the parliamentary hearings that took place over the summer or in the late fall in Uganda, where the finance minister apologized for poorly negotiated terms of this deal, and there were terribly imbalanced terms of this deal, that by talking about the debt traps, you then don't talk about what really is the problem here are some of these deals that are A, done in secrecy, and B, have very unfair terms to them. In, for example, one of the points that MPs brought up in the testimony of the finance minister was the fact that the arbitration issue, and this has been a point of contention, that the arbitration is always in China of some degree. And that's been something that people feel is very unfair. It should be in a third-party country that is neutral. And and again, this, this comes up over and over again that there's these details of the contract that are imbalanced, and we don't focus on that. So, but Kobus, let's kind of go back to where does this come from? Why do we keep coming back to the debt trap narrative? And people like Professor Deborah Braudigam at the China Africa Research Initiative has have literally spent a career in trying to debunk this thing. It goes back five or six years, but she's been talking about myths in the China-Africa relationship going back more than a decade. Most recently, she's been debunking the debt trap narrative. But where does it come from? Well, it comes from people like MI6 head Richard Moore, who gave an interview on the BBC. And before we go into details, let me just play you the, the little snippet from that interview, because it's just it, it's, it's, it's baffling that this is the head of a, a major intelligence service. And listen to what he had to say about China and debt traps.
2: You know, I, I talk about data traps and debt traps in this space, and then they will use, they will, they will use them for leverage. Data so think- and debt, just spell it out if you would. So,
1: I think uh, a debt trap is something I think we're all fairly familiar with, that if you uh, take on loans and then you find it difficult to repay them, uh, then, you know, we've seen some examples of this, where the Chinese have then been able to acquire uh, significant ports, you know, significant ports, which have the potential to become naval facilities, etc. Oh,
3: God. (laughs) (laughs) Shameless disinformation. How many
0: years are we going to go on with this? I mean, and the reference he was making just for those of you playing at home to ports that have been seized was to the port of Habantota in Sri Lanka, which has been debunked time and time and time again from think tanks and scholars and scholars in the United States and Europe that I think Richard Moore and his team at MI6 would find credible. And it's clear, it's clear that these guys are getting bad information if this is their worldview. It is absolutely shocking that in 2021, we are still talking about this this way from people like Richard Moore.
3: And let me point out that Financial Times repeated that claim with no question. So, you know, so so the the reporting in high-level, very, very respected, uh, you know, kind of Western outlets of these talking points with no question, you know, kind of does tend to strengthen them, you know, so...
0: Oh, and, and then it gets taken on Twitter and just amplified and regurgitated and vomited up over and over again. Now, it was this comment on the BBC that then provoked the BBC to reach out to Professor Deborah Broudigam at Johns Hopkins University, who is the director of the China-Africa Research Initiative, and widely seen as the world's leading expert on the debt trap issue, Okay, at least in the US and Europe, because I know that the creator of the debt trap theory in India, he despises Professor Braudigam, but other than him... A lot of people respect Professor Broutigam for this. And interestingly, just like you talked about with the FT, the way that they edited her sound bites made it sound like, in some ways, that she endorsed the debt trap theory, which is just, for anybody following Deborah Broutigam, is just what? You know, shocking. She goes on to Twitter and she then posts on her blog a real letter of disappointment of the way that she was treated by the BBC, that then turns into a full-blown international incident (laughs) where Zhao Lijian, who's the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, he takes up the cause, the pro-China Twitterverse takes up the cause, and it becomes this giant thing. The BBC then later apologizes and says they had an inexperienced editor, but interestingly enough, they did not either amend, they did not put a correction on the show page, which I thought was weird because it's easy to put a correction on the show page or to put a link to Deborah Browden's blog or for an editor to put a note. When you and I make a mistake in our newsletter, when I say something stupid and incorrect, you don't say anything stupid (laughs) and incorrect, but when I usually do, we'll put a correction up there to say, Hey, we goofed. Totally sorry about that. And so I was kind of surprised that the BBC didn't do that. And and, you know, and, and so anyway, this has been a huge drama. It's really kind of depressing that again, there isn't more thoughtful and critical coverage. Let's kind of keep going with our journey here because just last week, the Wall Street Journal came out with an exclusive report, Cobus, an exclusive report from the Pentagon that, that says that the United States is worried about China building an Atlantic military base, this time in Equatorial Guinea. Now, if regular listeners of this show think this sounds familiar, it's because I've been going on about this for months now, that the United States, led by AFRICOM commander General Stephen Townsend, have been floating these ideas into the U.S. media. So in May, there was an article in the Associated Press, now we have one in the Wall Street Journal, which suggests that the Chinese want to build an Atlantic base. Now, that's fine for the Pentagon to do this, because that's their right to do it. Where I am disappointed is in the journalism again. And just like you said with the FT when they did not question any of this, that the AP and the Wall Street Journal, who both have rather extensive reporting resources within China and in places like Hong Kong and access to lots of sources who know about Chinese military strategy, they never interviewed any of them. And they basically took the U.S. assertion on face value. That then creates two weeks of media cycles and then... Publications like The Economist state emphatically and declaratively, unconditionally, that China is now considering Atlantic bases. So what's so interesting is that when Pentagon spokesman John Kirby was asked at the regular press briefing in Washington to provide some proof and evidence of the claim that the Chinese are trying to build or considering building a base in the Atlantic, here's what he had to say.
2: I'm sure you've seen the Wall Street Journal report about China's attempt to seek a military base in Equatorial Guinea. Can you confirm that, um,
3: that that you've seen evidence that they are trying to establish a base there?
1: What I would just tell you, as as part of our normal diplomacy uh, to address maritime security issues uh, there in that region, uh, we have made clear, the administration has made clear, not the Department of Defense necessarily, to the leaders of Equatorial Guinea that— certain potential steps involving the PRC uh, and the PRC's activities there uh, would raise national security concerns for us. And we've, we've been, uh, the administration has been clear about that.
0: That was not her question. And why did he not answer her question? He can't answer her question because there is no evidence. There is no proof. And, 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 And I had a conversation with some folks in D.C., and I was like, do you guys have any understanding at how destructive it is for the Pentagon to to say these kinds of things to the broader U.S. agenda in Africa? Because this is what people focus on. And I pointed out that the United States is really the only major power in the world that lets its generals kind of freelance on foreign policy messaging outside of the political and the foreign ministry vertical. You don't have a French general, for example, kind of speaking outside of what the Quai d'Orsay says, or the Japanese general at Djibouti saying something different than what the foreign ministry in Tokyo says. But here we have a huge chasm between the State Department and the Pentagon on this issue. The State Department says nothing about this. And what ends up happening is that all of the narrative about the US in Africa and China gets completely overwhelmed these kind of comments. It's just, so no wonder that the Chinese and Africans are on the defense because we're seeing people like the Pentagon and MI6 kind of continue to say these kinds of things, which are just not rooted in
3: facts. This is unfortunate. But it's very interesting the <laughs> the kind of the way that you know so so he, he sidestepped the you know kind of the, the the question or the request for confirmation right kind of because as, as, as we guess who knows what's going on behind the scenes but as we guess there probably is no confirmation to give but then it was very interesting that he then replaced that with this this kind of comforting <laughs> or maybe comforting to American kind of like listeners think of like well at least we bossed around this African country to make sure that they that they really understand that we wouldn't be happy you know if if they happen to consider this thing that might not happen but if it does then they'd better not considering it's considerate it, you know that kind of that kind of message you know it's like <laughs> it just it just plays so badly in africa like i would just have to laugh when i heard it <laughs> so
0: what the wall street journal the ap the economist and others did not do which Javons Naibyaj at the South China Morning Post in Nairobi did, Javans reached out to a Chinese military expert to say, does this make sense? And I have not seen this in any of the U.S. and European coverage on this, okay? And they quoted a, 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 a military expert who said, it is too far away from China, referring to a base in Equatorial Guinea, doesn't sit along China's major maritime routes, and even its oil, once extracted, is more suitable to be sold in Europe rather than back to China to maximize profits. There is no logical sense for China to set up a maritime base in the Atlantic. Servicing that base, supplying that base would be very, very complicated. It's not grounded in any strategic thinking. And yet to see how all of these normally respectable publications who I count on heavily for my worldview and, and and information, just take what the Pentagon says at face value. And and as a person whose identity was framed during the Iraq war, the the Bush Jr. Iraq war, where they took the American lies on Iraq at face value, to see this happening again is just, it's so depressing. I don't even know what to say, but this is just, Crappy reporting up and down.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's really it it, it does give a, a a little bit of a feeling that I that I a, a kind of a tone that I that I get a little bit occasionally in think tank world as well. uh Not in South African think tank world, but you know, kind of when speaking to international kind of colleagues, it's a little bit this kind of like we're all on a team, you know, kind of like we're we're all we're all together, um, which is not how research works, you know, and it's not really how journalism is supposed to work either.
0: It's not supposed to be how journalism works. We're not on a team. The only team you have as a journalist should be the truth and should be fact checking and, and skepticism as well. So if the Pentagon says this, why didn't they reach out to military analysts to say, "Okay, this is what the Pentagon says. Does that make sense? Walk us through the logic of this. And they never reached out to the PLA because typical in journalism would be to say, well, the, the Pentagon has said this. We're going to go to the PLA for comment. Of course, the PLA is going to say no comment. We're not going to talk about this. But you put that in the story just to show that you've made some effort at balance. They haven't done that. So, yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny because we we know quite a few Africa, China researchers in our circles and. During this whole period of Entebbe, of Equatorial Guinea, after FOCAC, they were approached and asked about these debt trap narratives. And they were just saying they're as exhausted as we are on this because it just never seems to end. And that's the only thing that they're interested in. And what, again, it comes back to is by these bogus stories obfuscate the real problems in the China-Africa relationship. And those go unaddressed because they're focusing on the wrong thing. That's my biggest problem with it.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. It's, you know, kind of it, it, it ends up warping the discussion in this kind of weird other direction that where, you, where everyone keeps having to be busy debunking you know, nonsense instead of actually addressing the actual problems that are involved.
0: Wow, heavy show today, huh? I mean, really <laughs> heavy. <laughs> but listen, these are big issues and and you know, I collect the sound as I'm putting together the newsletter and and I wanted to bring all of this to you again. I apologize that it's a longer show today, but there was just so much to talk about. We wanted to bring it to you. Again, really happy that Andy could join us because to be honest with you, we have not had enough Chinese voices on the show. It is getting more difficult to get Chinese voices to come on the show. So, when when Andy agreed to come I was super excited. The point here is not that we all agree or that we get into a shouting match with people we disagree with. And so I know some people are going to be frustrated that some of Andy's points were not more aggressively confronted, but that's not the the kind of show we do. We really want to let our guests articulate and express their points of view in such a way that we can all better understand where they're coming from and then challenge them when necessary and then agree with them when necessary. So let's leave the, the... the discussion there. Again, we have one more show this year, then we're going to do our year in review show, and we've got some fantastic programs lined up for January. We also have a lot of big news coming to you for February and March. We're working on some really cool things uh, at the China Africa Project. We can't wait to tell you and to introduce you to some of our new team members. Cobus. Uh, by this time next year, we're going to have a small little mini newsroom dedicated to all of the, you know, China, middle East, China, Africa, China, global South issues.
3: Very exciting.
0: And so, and it's going to be all African and Chinese voices. This is going to be something very important to us that I'm, I'm the only non-African or Chinese person on the team. So the big push that we're going to be doing is bringing more African and Chinese voices to this discussion so that we can kind of be in that place in between the shouting polls (laughs) where everybody's yelling at each other. We wanna be this kind of sane oasis in the middle. That's the goal at least. So if you would like to be part of our community, we have a couple of different ways that you can join us. First is you can sign up and register for the website so that you can get all of the archives, all of our newsletters. You can get access to everything unfiltered. Four to five thousand articles now are in the database, all organized by country and keyword. We've got 650 some odd podcasts that you can use. And now we have transcripts to all of our podcasts just for subscribers. Researchers asked us for that and we added that into the mix as well. But if that's too heavy for you, we have a weekly edition that is also available. And we're going to be offering that uh, to subscribers on the website. But right now you can get it over on our Patreon community. Go to patreon.com slash China Africa Project. And if you want to sign up for the China Africa Project website, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions we've kept very, very affordable at $7 for students and teachers and $15 for everybody else. Okay, that's enough of my log rolling and my promotional stuff. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode, our last normal show of the year in 2021. What an incredibly eventful year it's been. And holy crap, Cobus, if any of what Andy says come true next year, we're going to be in for a very scary 2022. So let's hope that all of his predictions do not come true and uh, at least related to Iran, China, and Russia. But for, for, we're looking forward to a 2022, and understanding these issues is really hard, and that's what we're trying to solve. So for Kobus Venstatten, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
1: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. For more information
2: about the China Africa Project, go to chinaafricaproject.com.